I want to start today by introducing you to a family, a Kurdish family. Uh, this is their picture. They are in an airport. This was a few years ago, and they were stuck in this airport for, for quite a long time. Uh, again, this is a, a family, a Kurdish family from Syria, and the reason they're in this airport is because they had fled Syria during this, the Civil War, which is still ongoing, uh, and uh, they were driven from their homes, and they fled. They fled to Russia, and so they decided that's where they were going to try to, uh, to gain uh, asylum, and, and so they, they're in this airport. They get there, though, and in this Moscow airport where they are, and they are told that their passports are fake, even though they're not, and so they got stuck in this airport, and they were not able to go home because they didn't have a home to go to. They were not able to enter the country in Russia because they were told that their passports weren't valid. So they were stuck in this little cubicle that used to be a smoking section inside the airport. was not anymore. And so they lived there, forget this, a total of 71 days. 71 days inside this little bitty cubicle, sleeping on air mattresses, sleeping on the floor, and basically living off the kindness of others. People would give them food, and that's where they were stuck. They couldn't go anywhere. They stayed there for 71 days until finally they were granted entry into the country. And there were a lot of families that, that were in that kind of situation. But I remember reading this story and thinking about uh, the nation of Israel, or at least connecting it with this, this passage or this study that we've been in, uh, you know, they, the nation of Israel has been wondering for a while, right? They've been wondering. Uh, they went through the Red Sea. They, were, uh, they let go from Egypt. They, they go through the Red Sea experience, and then they wander in the desert for about 40 days, and, and they're, they're probably thinking, and we've seen them express this, what have we gotten ourselves into? Uh, they don't know exactly what's ahead of them. Uh, they know that God has done great things. They've seen great miracles, but they don't exactly know what their future holds. And, you know, like this family, there's a lot of uncertainty. And we've all been in those situations where we faced uncertainty. We're in one of those situations right now, right? Uh, we don't exactly know how all of this is going to, uh, to end, what the future holds. We never do, and it's just kind of highlighted right now that we don't know what the future holds. Uh, but we do know that God is in control, and we've seen that lesson over and over and over again. And, and as we look at the nation of Israel go through these different stages, again, uh, the Red Sea, uh, being, being let go from Egypt, all of the plagues, you know, all of these things, and now uh, the wondering, meeting God like Last week we talked about them preparing to meet God at Mount, at Mount Sinai and all that went into that, him, them being consecrated, set apart. All through this, God is preparing them for what we're going to look at today, and that is his giving them the Ten Commandments. We went through a series on the Ten Commandments a little over a year ago. Uh, we've walked through them uh, in detail. We're going to talk about them today as a whole. Uh, but God had been preparing the nation of Israel for this day where he would give them the Ten Commandments. This series that we're in, if you'll remember, the purpose of this series is that we want to, we are studying the life of Moses to experience God's spiritual principles so that we can live a spiritual life in Christ. We've seen Moses as the leader of these people and his journey of faith and what we've learned from him, the lessons we've learned from him. And we've seen from the nation of Israel their journey of faith, and we've learned 
the, the, the spiritual principles that God has taught them about their lives, about himself. And, and today we are going to talk about his rules, uh, the Ten Commandments, as he has laid them out. We're just going to walk through them very quickly. Uh, in Exodus chapter 20, uh, beginning in verse 3, I'm not going to read uh, uh, the entire chapter, but I am just going to walk through each of these commandments, all right? Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The fifth, honor your father and mother. The sixth, you shall not murder. The seventh, you shall not commit adultery. The eighth, you shall not steal. The ninth, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And the tenth commandment, you shall not covet. Now again, if you'll recall our series, we talked about this on the Ten Commandments. It's very important to realize with the Ten Commandments, the first four deal with our relationship with God. The second four deal with our relationship with each other. Uh, and so as we look at these, you know, our minds should immediately go to... When Jesus was asked the greatest commandment in Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, Teacher, which is the greatest law? Uh, which, which command in the law is the greatest? And he said to them, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets depend on these two commandments. What is he doing there? Well, he's summing up the Ten Commandments. They can all be put into two different categories. The first four, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Everything that you have and everything that you are, that's what that means. And if you love God, you will obey the first four commandments. Not perfectly, but you will be motivated to obey the first four commandments. The second deal with loving your neighbor, loving each other, loving others. I mean, the last six deal with that. So if I love God, I'm going to love my neighbor, which means I'm going to follow the first four commandments because I love God, and then I'm going to follow the last six because I love my neighbor as myself. See, Jesus is summing that up for us. He's simplifying it for us. He's putting it in a nice, neat little box so that we can understand the purpose of these commandments and how they affect our lives. They affect our outward activities as well as our inward activities. They affect a wide range of issues. They affect um, idolatry. They affect our worship. They affect our speech. They affect our relationships with each other. They affect our relationships with our neighbors, our actual neighbors. They affect our relationships at work, how we behave, what we do, what we don't do, the things that we choose, the ways we choose to spend our time or not. It affects every area of our lives. But these Commandments are not just a set of suggestions, and we treat them that way sometimes. They're not just suggestions. It's not a suggested set of rules. They're not outdated. One of the things that we, we really tried to make clear in our Ten Commandments series is that they're, they're not outdated. They're not uh, an antiquated set of rules that don't apply to life. They weren't abolished when Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead. They still have a purpose. They are still relevant. They are still fresh for today. They are from the mouth of God. They are written by God and they are important. They are God's law and they are relevant. The Ten Commandments are rules that you and I should live by. They're 
They are valuable. So how do we know this? Well, the first thing we need to understand is that there is a purpose in the law, the Ten Commandments, the law. There is a purpose in the law. I want you to look at Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 8. One of the things that they do, one of the purposes of the commandments is that they tell us what sin is. Once you look at what Paul says here, he says, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. So what is sin? Well, Romans 3.23 tells us it means to fall short of God's glory. And the law shows us where we fall short. The law shows us God's standard, and in doing so, it reveals to us our sin. Without the law, we wouldn't be able to see our sin. It's kind of like a mirror, and I want to show you that this morning. Gracie's going to help me show you that this morning, a little reluctantly, but she's going to help me because she doesn't even know exactly what I'm going to do here. I've given her some information. You need a mask, though. You got your mask? You got to use your mask as a blindfold. All right, there we go. That's always bad, right? A blindfold is never a good thing if you're participating. Okay, so I've got a few things here, and uh, we're going to, you know, without a mirror, you can't see, you know, if you get up in the morning, you get ready, you look in the mirror, you check yourself, and, you know, your hair's straight, makeup if you wear makeup, and all that kind of stuff, you, you just make sure everything's right. Um, if, without a mirror, you can't see your own face. We agree on that? Something could be on your face, and you wouldn't know it. And we've all been in those conversations where somebody had food or something on their face, and you don't want to tell them because you don't want to embarrass them, and they didn't have a clue because they couldn't see their own face. Well, we're going to show how that's true today, okay? Uh, are you ready? All right. She's such a great sport. My kids are. So I have a couple of things. Can you see? All right. I got to be able to get to your face a little bit, all right? So I got a couple of things, and we're going to decide what we're going to use here, and I'm going to get, I'm going to get your brother to tell me what to use here. Does that work? All right. All right, I got three things. That I'm not, she, she's like, no, that's not okay. All right, so I got three things here, and, and we'll see. Don't say them out loud because she doesn't need to know what they are. Um, so what do you think? Eh. <laughs> Look at him. It's okay, Gracie. I got you. Don't worry about it. I got you. All right, and all right. <laughs> we know what we know what 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 he wants. Well, I'm going to actually choose. I was just trying to prove how mischievous you were to the rest of the church. But uh, but but we're we're going to do a little. Y'all got to y'all got to you know you know you can giggle or whatever, but stay quiet because I'm going to see how much she actually trusts me here. All right, just not very much, evidently. Okay, all right. Okay. Did you smell anything? Yes. Is it scary? Are you scared? Are you worried? You can take your blindfold off now. All right. Well, nobody's laughing at you right now, so that's a good sign. <laughs> so what do you think the chances are that I just marked all over your face? Um. You can be honest. It's okay. I don't know. She's wanting to say a lot because she knows me, right? All right, I would not do that to you with a sharpie. Your brother wanted me to use the sharpie. I want you to know right now. So you can, you don't have to believe me though. You have no idea whether I did or not right now, right? Because you can't see your face. What do you need? You need a mirror. Now look, see, I didn't mark on your face. I wouldn't do that to you. Thank you, Gracie. All right. 
See, I do love my kids, even if I do give them a hard time, which I enjoy doing. But, okay, we went a long way around there to prove a point, right? You cannot tell what's on your face unless you look in the mirror or you ask the person next to you, but you got to trust them, right? But if I want to see what my face looks like, I've got to look in the mirror. That's what the law does for us. I can't see my own sin. I don't know what my own sin. I mean, sometimes we know when we've done something wrong, but we would not know what sin is at all, right and wrong, without the Ten Commandments, without the law. And that's one of the purposes of the law is that it shows us what sin is. It's a mirror where we can look into uh, God's standard and see a reflection of ourselves accurately and where we fall short. The law also teaches us what God is like. You look at, at Romans seven twelve. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. The law is a reflection of God's character. It shows us what he's like. You know, this is this is true of, of all rules and regulations, right? If you look at the rule, it tells you something about the person who made the rule or the group of people who made the rule. I mean, think about it. Uh, think about the, the handicap standards we have for public places in our country. Um, and, and, you know, we've learned a lot about that and other things in, in our renovation plans, all of the rules, all the regulations. But just that, that, that one specific thing, what does that tell you about the people who made that rule. It, it, it tells you, because it wasn't always like that, right? In some countries, it still isn't like that. Handicap access, things of that nature. Well, it tells you that, that we as a group of people, if you have a physical disability, we want you to be involved in the rest of the activities that we're involved with. It, it, it says we care about you and want you to be included. That's what that rule says. Well, we can see something about the character of God when we look at the Ten Commandments. They teach us something about God. It reveals the glory of God. It reveals his holiness. It reveals his jealousy, not in a sinful way, but that he, he is the one and only true God, and he deserves to be worshipped, and he wants to be worshipped. Nobody else or nothing else in your life should have a place of that importance of worship. It tells us about his sovereignty, his justice, his honor, his faithfulness, his providence, his truthfulness, his love. The Ten Commandments tell us things, those things about God. They express God's will for our lives, and they are based on his character. They teach us about who he is. And we also see the law described as a guardian. It's our guardian until Christ comes. Look at Galatians 3.24. The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. This word guardian means, in this, in this place, the way it's used, it means someone who points out or punishes misbehavior in their children in order to separate them from outside influence. We do that for our children, don't we? They do something wrong, or they're being influenced in a way that's not right. And so what do we do as parents? We correct the misbehavior in our children, and then we separate them from influences that will lead them in the wrong direction. Uh, we do that as long as we can as parents. That's our desire. And why do we do that? Well, we love them, we know, what, we know what's best for them, better than they do, and we want to protect them from things that will be harmful or actions that will be harmful. But we're also pointing them to something greater, aren't we? What are we doing with our kids? We're preparing them to be adults. We're pointing them to something bigger in their lives, something later in their lives. And that's what the law did. 
for God's people. He was correcting misbehavior, yes. He's separating them from the outside influences. They had been in Egypt, idolatry, very, very many gods that, that, that were worshipped. They were used to that kind of lifestyle. He's correcting misbehavior. He's teaching them about himself, what's right and wrong, but he's preparing them for what's to come. He's pointing them towards something greater. He's pointing them toward the coming Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, who would fulfill the law and do what they could not do, uh, satisfy God's justice and his righteousness. And so the law, let's just sum it up this way, all right? The law is a mirror. It reveals man's sin. It shows us our sin. It is a yoke. It brings bondage because it's impossible to keep it, all right? That's the problem. It shows us our sin, but none of us can keep the commandments perfectly on our own. Um, The Pharisees couldn't. Moses couldn't. None of us can. All right? It's a schoolmaster or a guardian. It points us, ultimately, it points us to Christ who fulfills the law. And and in that way, it is a shadow. It's contrasted with the reality and the fulfillment that's found in Jesus. The law has a purpose. Also, number two, there's power in the law. The law has power. Uh, The law gives sin its power. Uh, We read that in Scripture, and we'll talk about what we mean by that. Let's let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, 56 first. Now, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And, you know, there is is power in the law uh, because it shows us what sin is. Romans 7, 8 through 11. And sin seizing an opportunity... Through the command produced in me every kind of, uh, every, in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life. I realized I was actually dead. I died, verse 10. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Okay, what are we saying here? Think about it. Without rules to break, there is no sin, right? If there are no rules, I can do whatever I want. And you can't tell me what's right and wrong. So without the law, there is no sin, which means there is no death, which means sin has no power. It's the law that gives sin its power because it's the law that shows us what right and wrong is, what sin is. It also causes fear. Look at Exodus chapter 20. Go back to our passage for today. Verses 18 through 21. So so God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, and he is now to go tell the people. And here's what happens in verse 18. We pick up right after the commandments are given. In verse 18, here's what we see. All the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain surrounded by smoke. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. It's the presence of God. They're witnessing from a distance, and they are terrified. Verse 19, you speak to us and we will listen, they said to Moses. But don't let God speak to us because we will die. They're afraid. They don't want to encounter God, his holiness, his perfection, his righteousness, his power. Verse 20, Moses responded to the people, don't be afraid. Now, this is kind of an interesting verse. Pay attention. Don't be afraid, for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and not sin. Don't be afraid, now be afraid. <laughs> That's kind of what it sounds like, right? He's saying, don't be afraid. You know, don't, don't be live in fear. You know, I, I, don't want, I want you to have a relationship with me, but I want you 
to use these rules, the purpose of these rules is so that you will fear God, you will respect God. And there's two types of fear, right? There's fear that causes me to run, and there's fear that, that causes respect. And that's what God's talking about. I want you to hold me in awe. Yes, I am God. I'm holy. I'm righteous. I'm separate. But these rules, if you live by these rules, it will allow us to have a relationship. Because these rules are a part and will be fulfilled later on. All right? They don't understand all of that right now. But he is, he is giving them a way to have a relationship with him. He's saying, I want you to respect me. And out of your respect, out of your fear of me, you obey me. You respect me, so you obey these laws. And the people remained standing at a distance as Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. You know, you, if you take Jesus out of the picture, all of this is based on the coming Christ. I mean, the law was never meant to save them. It wasn't the purpose. It's pointing toward Christ. We've already talked about that, one of the purposes. If you take Jesus out of the picture, we have every reason to be afraid. We can't keep the law, and we should fear God. We should fear him no matter what, but we should have the type of fear that would want to make us want to run away from him. All right, but, but because of Jesus, we should not fear. But one of the reasons it's terrifying is because it brings the wrath of God. Without salvation, it, it brings the wrath. Because if you break one of them, you're guilty of sin, and you have to suffer the consequences. Romans 4.15, the law produces wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. And the wrath of God, apart from grace, is a very terrifying thing. Without grace, very terrifying. There's intent in all this, though. The law is supposed to show us our faults, our insufficiencies. However, it's also, we also know that there's a problem with the law. There's a problem. You say, I thought God's word was perfect. It is. That's not what I'm saying. It creates a problem for us. A problem that has a solution, but it is a problem nonetheless. There are some things that the law cannot accomplish, was never meant to accomplish. All right? Let's look at it quickly. The law could not make anyone perfect. That's not the purpose. God knows you cannot keep all these rules. But we've fallen in sin. We're imperfect. He knows this. That wasn't the purpose in the law. It's not to make you perfect, to make me perfect. The law could not justify us from sin. It's not what it's here to do. It's not meant to justify us from sin. All right? The law cannot give righteousness. It's one of the mistakes the Pharisees made. They thought they could achieve righteousness by following the rules. That's not the purpose. It's not what it's meant to do. The law could not give peace. Cannot give peace. And you can follow all these rules and still not be at peace if you don't have Christ. Doesn't matter. You cannot, that's not the purpose of the law. And the law could not give life. It's not the purpose of the law. It's not to save us. It's not to give us life. The law shows us that we can never be good enough. And I've said this, but think about it. Israel, the Pharisees, none of them could, uh, could follow the law completely. None of them were perfect in it. They had all fallen short. No one can obey it completely. It's impossible. And it's not just the outward things that prove this. Jesus said that the reach of the law includes our inner thoughts. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Okay, being angry, I may not have actually done something, but if I'm angry with my brother, that means I've broken one of the laws, according to this. So it's not just what I do on the outside, it's what's in my heart as well my mind. 
And whoever says to his brother, fool, you will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, I love that translation, will be, will be subject to hellfire. It's about, yes, it's about outward actions, but it's also about what's in the heart. The minute I have anger towards my brother, I'm in sin. None of us can keep the law. The law was not meant to save us. Even if I have a sinful thought, I'm guilty. We are called, and here's the, here's the problem, okay? It wasn't meant to do those things. The problem for us is that we are called by our Heavenly Father. We are called to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 48, that's, that's the standard. The, the standard, God's standard is perfection. The problem is we have all sinned and fallen short of God's perfect standard. We cannot be perfect. We've all made mistakes. We've all had sinful thoughts. So, so there, there's the conflict. There's the problem. So what does this tell us? This tells us that the law shines a huge 1,000-watt light bulb on our imperfections. And that's an unfortunate thing because we're all imperfect. And the law, even if others don't see it, we do when we look at God's standard. And we really are honest with ourselves and allow the Holy Spirit to show us our imperfections. It shines a huge light on where we fall short, our imperfections, on our problems. The law condemns us. And the law in and of itself condemns us with no hope. If you just take the law without Christ, without grace, without looking forward for the Israelites toward a coming Savior, which God had promised, when you take that just by itself, there's no hope. It's hopeless because the law was not meant to save us, but it still serves a very valuable purpose. The law is valuable. It is intended to be a guideline for living. That's one of its values. But the law does not give us a solution to our problem of sin. But there is a promise in the law. There's a promise. There's a promise built in. God promised to provide something greater than the law. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors, a new covenant, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. A covenant they broke even though I had married them. The Lord's declaration, instead, this new covenant, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration, I will put teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least to the greatest of them, this is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sin. This isn't talking just about head knowledge. This is talking about heart knowledge, a change of the heart. He's talking about writing the rules on their heart, changing hearts. It's about relationship. It's not about following rules. It's about a relationship, which is what we were built for to know God and to be known by him and to glorify him. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. We can't do it on our own. 
without a new heart, it's impossible. The law points, here's the promise, and all of that I just read, the law points to our desperate need for a Savior, and God provided that Savior in Jesus Christ. That's the promise that's built in. Here's my standard. By the way, you can't meet my standard. So sorry. But don't worry, because I'm going to provide a way for all of that to be forgiven, and as we'll see, a way for you to be able to meet that standard, not on your own, but all of that. That's the promise of salvation. But we have to realize, and this is important, because this is where a lot of people make a mistake. When Jesus came, when he died, when he was raised, we do have a new covenant, yes, but the law was not abolished. Okay, the law, he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish the law. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Don't assume that I came to destroy the law, his own words, or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to what? To fulfill. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, so how exactly does Jesus fulfill the law? The law is still valid. It has a different role in this new covenant. Some, are, some of its, its purpose is the same, but some is different, uh, and that's because Jesus has fulfilled the law. So how does he do that? Well, for one thing, he is the only person who actually obeyed the law. Complete, he's the only human being who obeyed it perfectly. He alone is truly righteous. And, and by the way, that's how we become righteous. It's not our righteousness. It's his righteousness through us, in us, and through us. It's what's called, the theological term is imputed righteousness. We see that in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus perfectly kept the law. All right. He never sinned. He never broke the law. The only person who ever did, he perfectly kept the law of all the types. He's the Passover lamb. He, he was the sacrificial lamb, the only truly perfect lamb. And in doing so, took on all of our sin for all time. He paid the price for our sin so that we don't have to. We could never be righteousness on our own, but because of his death, his sacrifice, his resurrection, and because of his willingness through the Holy Spirit to live in and through us, he gives us his righteousness. We become righteous because he is in us, living in us, through us. He gives us a new heart. He takes away that heart of stone, gives us a brand new heart. He remakes us on the inside. And because we have his righteousness, we are now righteous. And so that is all him. That is all Christ. The law was never meant to make us righteous. That's not the purpose. It was to point toward our need for Christ. And in receiving Christ, we become righteous. It was given to show us that in and of ourselves, in our own good works, we can never keep the law. And without Christ, that's hopeless. But with Christ, that is amazing because we realize we don't have to do it on our own. We can't do it on our own. And there's freedom in that surrender, knowing that he is the one that makes us able, that makes us righteous. The law opens our eyes so that we can see our need for Jesus. Yes, the Holy Spirit convicts us, but it all works together. We see the law. 
And we see we fall short. And the Holy Spirit's convicting us, saying, that's God's standard. You are sinful. You need Jesus to pay for your sins. He already has. You need to accept him. The law shows us that. It shows us our need for Christ. Everything that we are, we owe to him. If you are a Christian, everything that you are, you owe to Jesus Christ. If you're alive today, you owe that to God, Jesus, your creator. Even if you haven't realized that yet, your life was given to you by him. Everything, our identity is tied to Christ. And that is why Paul says this in Romans 5, 19. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. His obedience makes us righteous. It's not our own. He makes us righteous. His perfection makes us acceptable to God. And now, as Romans 6.14 tells us, we are not under the law, we are under grace. But that's not all. Not only does Jesus obey the law himself, he actually gives us the ability to do the same. Do we look at this and say, well, I can't obey the law. Jesus did it for me, so I'm not even going to try. No, that's not what God wants. One of the reasons Jesus enters your life is so that he can give you the ability to now obey the law. You couldn't do it on your own. So he's going to give you his power and strength to do it. He gives us the ability to, by the Holy Spirit living in and through us, to obey the law. Romans 7, 6. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us, so that we may serve in the new way, not in the old way, in our flesh, in our own ability, but in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old letter of the law. So Jesus meets all the righteous requirements of the law, right? His death... As a perfect human, as God, as the perfect sacrificial lamb, God is just, he is holy, he cannot allow sin into his presence, so somebody has to pay for sin. His death, Jesus met the standards of the law, God's standards. We could not, so he did it for us. You've heard the analogy, it's like a judge who sentences you for speeding and says, okay, you owe $50 or $500 or whatever, but I'm not going to require you to pay it. I'm going to pay it for you. Only he has the ability to do that. That's what God did as the holy, righteous judge. Here's the payment for sin. It's death, but I'm going to pay that price for you. I'm going to take it on. And he, only he could do that. And that's what Jesus did for us. Living under grace as opposed to the law does not mean that we don't have to obey the law, though. It just, the, the reason changes. The motivation changes because we've changed. We obey the law now because we're compelled to by love. We love God. We appreciate what he's done for us. We know that we now have the power to do it because it's his power. So we obey his law. The law is still valid. God's standard has not changed. It's just that no longer does the law now condemn us. We are free in Christ, free to live, free to experience him, and free to obey him. We can obey him now. That's what Christ does for us. He meets the requirements for the law, and then he gives us the ability to obey the law because we could not do it on our own. That's what it means to live under grace. And we are told that as Christians, as I read, just read in Jeremiah, he has written the law on our hearts. And so in a new way, right? I mean, in some way, when we're created, the law is written on our hearts. That's why we know when we do something wrong, but it's tainted by sin, it's affected. When we receive our new heart, we know what we're supposed to do. He rewrites the law on our hearts, the scripture's telling us. And so we know what we are supposed to do, and then he gives us power to do it. And then he, in the process, is conforming us into the image of his son, making us like himself. In order for him to do his work, though, he wants to make you like Jesus. Jesus. 
But in order for him to do that, you have to surrender to him and obey him. It's in that obedience, that surrender, that he is able to do his work. We get out of the way so that he can do his work. We're not standing in the way through disobedience and through sin. We are following his law by his power, by his strength, and he makes us what we're supposed to be. He's fixing us from the inside out. It's all a process of sanctification, him making us like himself. And we come to know him more. And we come to know his plan for our lives. And we live out his plan for our lives. And we've, we experience joy and fulfillment that's only found in fulfilling God's plan for your life and for his kingdom. It's all a part of salvation. It's God's plan for salvation. Which answers a very important question. Are the Ten Commandments still relevant today? Are they still relevant today? Many people don't think so. And let's be honest, there are a lot of laws out there that are not relevant today. And I know you're glad I brought a list of them, right? I love things like this, and I have a list. And I tried, I confirmed nearly all of these. Some of them I could not find, but I confirmed that all of these, almost all of these are actually true, okay? Let's start with our state here. In Alabama, it's illegal to drive blindfolded. So Gracie just got her permit. You can't wear your mask when I let you drive next time, okay? You cannot drive blindfolded. I, for one, am thankful for that, but it seems like a silly law, doesn't it? seems like you wouldn't have to be told that. And you know the reason that that law is there is because somebody did it, right? All right? It's alphabetical order here. I just picked my favorites. In Arizona, donkeys cannot sleep in bathtubs. Evidently, that was a problem in Arizona at some point. So it is against the law. If you have a donkey, don't let him sleep in a bathtub in Arizona. Connecticut is serious about their pickles. How many people like pickles? Well, evidently in Connecticut, a pickle is only good if you drop it on the ground and it bounces. I don't know. I guess you take one pickle and do it and trust the others are the same or you're going to eat a dirty pickle. But in Connecticut, this is, and I, I confirm this, y'all, it is not legally a pickle unless it bounces. That's a law in Arizona and Connecticut. And here's one of my favorites. In Georgia, you cannot keep an ice cream cone in your back pocket on Sunday. So you can do it Monday through Saturday, but on Sunday, don't stick an ice cream cone in your back pocket. It has something to do with luring horses away. I, I looked into it, and it has, I didn't understand it, but it has something to do with luring horses away to keep people from stealing horses. I, I don't know. You can look it up. Uh, maybe I read that wrong, and correct me if I did, all right? In Indiana, speaking of horses, it's illegal to ride a horse above 10 miles per hour in Indiana. I'm guessing that's outdated. I don't know. Maybe they still enforce that. Maine, it's illegal in Augusta to walk down the street while playing a violin. So if you play a violin, don't walk down the street in Maine, Augusta, Maine. <laughs> Women, you'll like this. In Michigan... A woman isn't allowed to cut her own hair without her husband's permission. And I looked into it. It's still a law, but of course, hairdressers are like, yeah, we don't enforce that law. We're not, <laughs> they're not going to enforce that. But evidently, once upon a time, in Montana, it's illegal to give a rat as a present. So if you go to Montana at Christmas, no rats, no presents, all right? Don't do it. In New Mexico, oh, this is great. This is great. This is just, you know. Who, who wrote this law? In, in New Mexico, idiots may not vote. <laughs> Two questions. Number one, do they have a test to, to figure this out? And number two, are they going to enforce it on Tuesday? All right? That's all I'm going to say. I hope they do. All right? 
So if you're an idiot, vote somewhere besides New Mexico. Should have saved that one for last. In North Carolina, drunk bingo is against the law. You can play bingo, but you can't play tipsy. Shouldn't get drunk anyway. In Rhode Island, any marriage in which, and this, is, this goes with the other one I just read, any marriage in which either party is an idiot or a lunatic is null and void. Again, do they have a test for this? <laughs> I mean, how do you determine that? Who's, who's judging this, right? Some of these laws, it's crazy. This one's more relevant. In Tennessee, it's illegal to share your Netflix password. Okay, honestly, how many of you, if you lived in Tennessee, you'd be guilty? I'm raising my hand. I've shared my Netflix password before, so don't do that. If you live in Tennessee, you might get arrested or fined. In West Virginia, and I saved this one for last because this one just cracks me up. In West Virginia, you can, repeat can, take roadkill home for dinner. So if you run over something on the way home, you can take home from dinner. But this is the best part, and this was proven. This actually lowered the cost of road maintenance in West Virginia. They had, they had less roadkill to clean up, which tells you something, right? I don't know why it was illegal in the first place, but evidently it was, and they changed it. These are, I mean, some of these laws are outdated, and I think we can all agree that some of these laws are serious. So there are a lot of laws that are, I mean, these laws are silly. A lot of laws are obsolete. So the question remains, are the Ten Commandments valid? I mean, a a speech Ted Turner gave in 1989, I may have read this before, just part of it, he declared the Ten Commandments obsolete. He said, we're living with outdated rules. The rules we're living under are the Ten Commandments, he said, and I bet nobody here even pays much attention to them because they're too old. They're antiquated, he says. When Moses went up on the mountain, there were no nuclear weapons. There was not poverty. Today, the Ten Commandments wouldn't go over. Nobody around likes to be commanded, he said. Commandments are out. So, was he right? I say no. Absolutely not. The Ten Commandments are still relevant, very relevant. They're just as fresh as ever. He was right, though, in that nobody likes to be commanded. Let's be honest. We don't like to be commanded. And that's what it boils down to. We don't like to be told what to do. We want to do what we want. And we don't want anybody to interfere. In fact... Modern society as a whole mocks truth and promotes lie, a lie, the lie. Satan is the great deceiver, and he wants to trick you into believing that these are no longer relevant, that God's rules are antiquated, that they don't fit in our day and time. But that is not true. We shouldn't be surprised by that, though. In their book, The Day America Told the Truth, James Patterson and Peter Kim lay down the law for postmodern times, postmodern times, which is, is, is still what we are living in, the, the, the rules and regulations, or the lack thereof, rather. They observe that today there is absolutely no moral consensus at all. Everyone, they say, is making up their own personal moral codes, their own Ten Commandments. Patterson and Kim proceed to list what they call the real Ten Commandments, or the Ten Real Commandments, rules that people actually live by. They're not written down, but when you observe society, these are the rules that people actually live by. Here are a few of them. I don't see the point in observing the Sabbath. Many people don't see the point. Is that still in effect? The Sabbath has changed. We're under the new covenant. The day of the Lord is today. And so that's why we worship on Sunday. We explain that in our series on the Ten Commandments. But the principle of the Sabbath is still in effect. But modern society, postmodern society would say no. Another rule, I will steal from those who won't really miss it. It's okay to steal as long as they don't know. Well, they don't know that, it, that it's gone or if it won't hurt them financially. 
I will lie when it suits me, so long as it doesn't cause any real damage. I don't really want to hurt anybody, but it's okay to tell a little white lie. I will cheat on my spouse. After all, if given the opportunity, they would do it to me. Justification. Another rule, I will procrastinate at work and do absolutely nothing about one full day every five. Those are rules to live by, according to the new ten new commandments. They are based on what's called moral relativism. What's right for you may be right, and that's fine. You have your set of rules, but don't tell me to follow those rules. I'm going to define what's right for me, which is crazy, because if you make me mad, I may decide it's right for me to kill you, right? I say that's right. You say that's wrong. Well, that's your rules, not mine. That's relativism. That's moral relativism, and that's what the postmodern society, that's what our society, that's why we see chaos today. We can't agree on a set of standards, and if there are no standards, that means everybody gets to do what they want. I have four kids. If I let them do whatever they want, my house would be more chaotic than it is. That's what we live in. The world's chaos because we don't submit to a set of standards. The Ten Commandments are still valid. God has not changed. He is perfect. They were perfect then. They are perfect now. He has not changed his standards. All of this, when we look at all of this, we are not entitled to do whatever we want. We are not entitled to define our own rules. Only one person is entitled to do that, and that's the one who created it all and created the rules. And if we don't believe that, then our our lives are chaos. Our society is chaos. The problem is our laws usually conflict with God's laws because we want to do what we think is right and what feels good, and God wants to do what's best for us and what makes us more like him, conforms us to his image. The Ten Commandments are relevant for today. They were written in stone because they were meant to be for all time. And think about it. The Ten Commandments were in effect before they were written down. You look at Cain and Abel, murder. Why was murder wrong? Because that was God's law before it was written on a tablet. You know, it, 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 and to steal. You know, what, what was, it, was it ever, will it ever be right to murder someone? Will it ever be right to steal something from someone? Will it ever be right to lie to someone? No, it won't. The laws are good and they were always good. Cain and Abel, the Sabbath principle. Manna, six days out of seven, we just talked about that, right? That was before this. The Ten Commandments weren't written down yet, but the, the Sabbath principle was already in effect. Why? Because it was eternal. It was always supposed to be, or since creation at least, it was supposed to be. That was God's standard. The, the plagues, what did they, each one of those plagues addressed a God that Egypt had. That was about idolatry. That's before the Ten Commandments were written down. So the Ten Commandments were valid before, and they are still valid. They're writing, they're recording by Moses. And in Christ, the Ten Commandments become more relevant than ever. When you become a Christian, they become more relevant than ever. Matthew 22, 35 through 40, Jesus summed up the law. He said, love God and love your neighbor. If I love God as I should, I'm going to obey 1 through 4. And if I love my neighbor as I should, I'm going to obey 5 through 10. Augustine put it this way. He said, love God and do as you please. Now, that sounds self-serving, but think about it. If I love God truly and he transforms me, gives me a new heart, what am I going to do? I'm going to do things that please him. And guess what? I find true pleasure in that. When I obey God 
I end up finding out, yeah, I am doing things that please me because I'm finding joy. I'm finding fulfillment. The Ten Commandments, we find joy. They're not rungs on a ladder to climb to salvation. They're barriers placed by God to help us live satisfying lives, abundant lives, fulfilling lives. Ted Koppel, in a speech, said this. He said, our society finds truth too strong a medicine to digest, undiluted. What Moses brought down from Mount Sinai were not the Ten, command, or ten Suggestions, rather. They are commandments. Are, not were. They're still relevant. The sheer brilliance of the Ten Commandments is that they codify in a handful of words acceptable human behavior, not just for then and now, but for all time. They are as fresh today as ever. And under grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Ten Commandments that once condemned us now free us. Romans 7, Therefore, my brothers, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the crucified body of the Messiah, so that you may belong to one another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we may bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions operated through the law in every part of us and bore fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old letter of the law. We've been free, free from sin, free to serve. And now we can keep these rules. Can we do it on our own? No, but now we can by the power of God. It's possible with Jesus because as Paul says in Philippians 4, 13, I'm able to do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can obey the law through Christ, in Christ, him in me, because he gives me strength. The reason, we operate with a different motive as believers. Far too many people try to keep the law from the outside in, outside in, and they find disappointment. They fall short. We all do. You're not alone in that if that's you. We all fall short. But there are a lot of people out there that are saying, if I can get myself fixed up, I'll come to Jesus when I fix everything. Or maybe they don't even know what salvation is, if I can follow these rules, or most of them, when I get to heaven, God will add up my score, and if I've got more good than bad, I'll get in. Boy, I'm thankful. I don't have to worry about that. I want to be good, and I try to be good, but I know all the bad things I've done in my life. How about you? Do you really think when God adds up the score, the good's going to outweigh the bad? Understanding he knows all your thoughts, everything about you? No, that's not how it works, but a lot of people are trying that. Let me ask you a question. Are you saved? Have you been saved by grace? By the grace of Jesus Christ? Understanding that he paid your penalty? That he kept the law where you couldn't? Are you still trying to earn salvation? Let me ask you this. If you are, be honest. Are you exhausted? Because that's what you're going to find at the end of that road. Exhaustion and disappointment. But thankfully, praise God. He sent Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life. He met every requirement God has perfectly. And then voluntarily, he, nobody took it from him. He laid down his life. He gave his life and took on all of your sin and paid the price that you cannot pay so that now you can be free from sin. And yes, you will go to heaven for all of eternity, but you can also please God on earth and bring heaven to earth, and impact others. So let's just take a moment, bow our heads and close our eyes. In this moment, that's the question. Two questions, really. Understanding the principles we've discussed, number one, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you trying to earn salvation? If you are, I urge you 
give your life to Christ right now. Invite him into your life. Believe that he died for you, that he's alive right now, that he did it to pay for your sin. Invite him into your heart right now, into your life. Ask him to save you, and he will. And then we'll talk to you later about what to do next, okay? All you need to know right now is that he died for you. You cannot meet God's standard on your own. He did it for you, but you have to receive him. He's not going to force himself on you. If you are a believer, are you following God's rules? And if not, why? We're None of us are perfect, and that's not what I'm saying. But we should have a desire in our heart, an overwhelming urge to please God. And we have the ability to do that through Christ and in Christ. Is my life pleasing to you? God, thank you for providing a way for us to be saved. Jesus, thank you for paying the price that we could not pay. We can try our whole lives and we will never meet your standard perfectly. And, and, and we know that if we've failed once, then we are forever tarnished by sin. So it doesn't matter if we perfectly meet the standard later. We've already sinned. Something has to happen. Somebody has to to clean us up. Somebody has to pay that price. And thankfully, Jesus, you were willing. You were the only one that could do it. You lived a perfect life. You gave your life. You died taking on our sin, suffering your father's wrath, separation, You cleansed us. You are the perfect Passover lamb. And for those of us who know you, we're now free in you. We owe you everything. Anything that we are, anything that we do is because of you. You cleaned us. You set us apart. You gave us a new heart. You put your spirit in us. And now you've empowered us to live in a way that pleases you and glorifies you. And I pray, God, that that would be the desire of our hearts and that it will shine through in everything that we do, in our lives, at church, but not just at church, at work, in our families, when no one else is looking, that our desire would be to please you, that we would be the same wherever we are. Not perfect, but desperately in love with you to where it affects every action that we take. To where everything that we do, if people are paying attention, they will catch a glimpse of you because we are being made like you. You are being replicated in us, and then we have a desire to do the same to others, to disciple others. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your standard and a way to meet your standard. May we live our lives in a way that pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen.